Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Back to America's Heroes Group. This time with the roundtable and partner, the Chicago Regional Office of Veterans Benefits Administration. Today is Saturday, November 13th, 2021. November is Military Family Appreciation and Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month. And as we just learned, it's Caregiver National Caregivers Month. So our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Claiborne, the co-host. Executive producer is Glenda Smith, and our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. And also join us on now on live streaming on Facebook. You can see our talk radio show on Facebook Live, live streaming. Like and share so others will become connected. And also to get information and resources, you can also listen to America's Heroes Group on the iHeartRadio app. Just search America's Heroes Group and watch us on platforms like digital TV streaming on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, and the Zondra's TV networks at Zondra with Z as in Zulu, ONDRA, Zondra's TV networks. We have some great people on our, uh, on our line today. We have David Modes. He's a U.S. Army combat veteran and Chicago Regional Office Veteran Benefits Administration claim processor. And we also have Adam Swantz, Chicago Regional Office Veteran Benefits Administration at the Veteran Service Center, and he's a Veteran Service Center manager. And Monica Arango, she's the Chicago Regional Office Veteran Benefits Administration rating specialist and veteran representative. We're going to talk about something very serious and something that's on the minds of a lot of people across the country, and that's military sexual trauma, particularly in the claim processing of military sexual trauma in the VA. So uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. So Thank Adam, you very much. Thank you there. So it's great. Yes, can you hear me? Guys. Yes, can he, I can see okay. and hear you. Yep. Now, so Terrific. David, what's to tell us about what is going on with military sexual claim processing? What's new? What's changing? And also give us a kind of a background as to what the difficulties and problems are with the military process of making claims for sexual MST and sexual trauma. Sure. So there's uh, definitely, as you said, it's a sensitive topic. Uh, it's a topic that the Office of Inspector General oftentimes uh, comes and inspects all of our different offices. Uh, it's a topic of congressional hearings and committees, whether it's the House committees or the Senate committees. Um, a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of sensitivity around it because of the specialization that's required in it and the number of hours that's required in it. You know, the, the military sexual trauma, it, it does refer to sexual assault and sexual harassment that's experienced during service. Um, anyone can experience MST regardless of their gender. It's, it's not gender specific. Up to 5,000 reported assaults uh, from 2017, 80% were female, 18% were male. One didn't disclose, 1% did not disclose their uh, gender. Um, but it's also important to note that the 2013 RAND study found that five out of six sexual assaults that are experienced by service members were not reported. And that can make feel veterans feel as though they, they don't have a valid claim with us because there's nothing uh, in service to document that event. 
Um, but those individuals, whether reported or not, they're, they're, you know, the military sexual trauma can affect uh, their, their mentality or their physical health. Um, you know, individuals can have disturbing memories or nightmares. Uh, they can have difficulty feeling safe, feelings of depression or numbness and problems with alcohol or drugs, um, and, and issues with sleep, physical health. Um, and all these responses are normal. And uh, we're, we look for those um, responses in medical health in medical health records. We're looking for them in service. You know, whether it's a MST or combat or personal trauma from an assault or a robbery, um, these are normal responses to something like that. But if somebody, if an, if an individual is having uh, these experiences and, and uh, recurring on a long-term basis, we definitely encourage them to file a claim and, and we will work to gather all the evidence on their behalf and, and you know, do our best that we can to, to grant benefits, which can affect multiple different areas of their life in, in terms of monthly compensation, healthcare benefits, uh, job skill training, even education benefits that could open up for them. Mm -hmm. Now, Monica, can you explain to our audience about what the difference is between MST, military sexual trauma, and sexual harassment? Uh, is, is MST a, a more of a, a military term, or is it a medical term? Is it a diagnosis, or is it just any time you experience sexual harassment or sexual trauma? That's a question, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about military sexual trauma. So military sexual trauma is the term that's used to identify the experience of military members. Um, it is the term that is used in connection with post-traumatic stress disorder and what we use as um, identifiers or markers within uh, veteran service treatment records and military personnel records that help us identify if there has been some type of an incident that occurred while on active duty. Uh, the terms, uh, in order for military sexual trauma to be a sustainable claim, it has to be connected with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, that's not to say that an incident did not occur if that diagnosis does not exist, but military sexual trauma in and of itself is not an independent diagnosis. Um, the ways to file for these claims, um, like David mentioned, is to go ahead and uh, file a formal claim. There is a form that is called uh, VA Form 0781A that specifically speaks to, um, it's a claim, and supplemental claim that basically helps in, it asks questions about stressors and what happened in those incidents. Um, because what happens is that the information that is provided to us at the VA, we then use to investigate these um, incident, incidents, and then we then send the medical information that we gather to medical professionals for, then, for them to then get an examination, which would then lead us to finding that diagnosis. And Adam, so explain to me this. So, that, so I, that's good clarification to understand that, um, that MST, military sexual trauma, is not a diagnosis. It's more of an event or an, or an action that's occurred to you and the results of that being some kind of traumatic experience, such as PTSD, namely what it sounds like what you're looking for when you look, file a claim. Now, is, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that a lot of people who have had, like you just mentioned earlier, five out of six not reporting? Do you think that is one of the reasons why? And then also walk us through the process. So once a person says, you know what, something did happen to me when I was in service, 
uh, what's the process to get uh, the claim started and what's uh, necessary to get uh, some kind of um, action on that claim. Okay, well, your, your audio is out, Adam. It might be on. You might be on mute. Can you hear me? Adam? I can still inform if, 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 if needed. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead? I think uh, we can't reach Adam right now. Sure thing. So there's there's actually several different ways that you can file a claim. Um, one of the ways is just going out to the va.gov website and um, clicking on the hyperlink that says, you know, file a disability claim. One of the things that I think the, the VA highly encourages, though, is to speak to a veterans representative um, that is an accredited representative with all the different veterans organizations that are out there. And you even had a commercial for uh, somebody who, who would have been accredited uh, because they will walk you through the entire process and they will serve as your representative with any matters pending with the VBA. And we'll also send them a copy of any you know, correspondence that we send to you. Um, you know, one of the other nice things is if, if you were to go onto any search engine, if you typed in VBA MST, uh, you will be directed to a link with all the different military sexual trauma coordinators, and all of them have had uh, across the nation and, and even in, in, in all of our offices internationally um, who have had specialized training in, in terms of how to, to speak to veterans, uh, how, all the, the, the specialty requirements that are needed to gather the evidence and the things that they should be looking for. Our office has three coordinators. We have one male and two females, and, and uh, we're very proud to say that all three of them are veterans themselves. Uh, but, you know, when they do file a claim, uh, and another way is to actually come into our office right now because of COVID, we're, we're taking appointments. And if you want to come into our office in person, you speak to a VA employee and they'll help you assist you file a claim. But um, when a veteran files a claim, uh, we do ask that they provide information about their experience in service and, and about that stressful event. We ask them to submit any evidence of the trauma, whether that's journals, statements from family, friends, or even fellow service members, uh, and also any medical records that would have been in service, but maybe you went to a private facility, not to a, you know, maybe somebody who's too afraid to go to a, a military hospital to seek treatment. Uh, we ask you to tell us how that experience has affected your daily life. You know, what are some of the symptoms that you're having of, of PTSD? Tell us how those, what those symptoms are and how those are affecting you. Um, we'll ask you to tell us if you're seeking any treatment and if you are currently seeking treatment. Some people are not actively seeking treatment for these symptoms. Uh, we do encourage you that you do get treatment for that because we want your, your health to be the best. Uh, but if if you're not seeking treatment at the current time, that's that's fine. That shouldn't prevent you from filing a claim. The VA's claim processors will, processors will request and obtain all medical evidence that, that have been identified, whether it's a private facility or, or a federal facility like a VA medical center. We'll also request your military personal records to review for any changes in, in performance in your performance evaluation. So we're looking for behavior changes. Uh, we're looking for maybe drug use or alcohol abuse that seems out of the ordinary in service. We also request your service medical records, and we look for reports of an assault. We look for sexual transmitted disease tests and pregnancy tests. Uh, and any treatment that seems out of the ordinary, maybe somebody went to sick call for uh, for help and kind of got cold feet and, and um, didn't want to really explain what they're there for. We also look for any unexplained injuries and bruises. Um, after reviewing all the evidence, we may ask you to attend a VA examination at the local VA medical center or, or one of our approved contractors. 
And then after a comprehensive review of all the evidence and um, gathering all that evidence, we would forward that claim onto a rating specialist such as Monica for, for a decision to be made. Well, that's good information. Now, Adam, can you hear us? You're back on? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, we go. Yeah, I wanted to get your um, thoughts on that as well, because in your experience, when you so someone goes and they, and they file a, a report, um, but once again, five, as we heard earlier, five out of six people don't want a report. And so what is the benefit of making the claim? What's going, what would push someone to go and file a claim? What are they going to get out of it, out of that process? It would seem that would be one of the most most hardest things to do in uphill battle to try to prove something that may have happened to you years ago. So, so what's what do you see? What are some of the things that, that can be resolved or what can a person get? You mentioned some, some things about um, compensation possibly or education, um, work uh, benefits, things like that. What are the things you get from a claim that you that you file? Right. Well, and, and keep in mind, I haven't I haven't uh, processed a claim in, in, in a long time. <laughs> but if I may kick this kick this one back to da- to David and Monica as well. But I mean, yeah, um, you know, that's why I think it's really important that we, um, you know, like Dave mentioned, having MST specialists in the office um, that we have people that um, are approachable and especially trained in this area to know how to receive someone. Um, and know how to have that very difficult conversation with someone. So a lot of the responsibility is on, is on us, is on, on BBA um, to both um, sort of make the benefits known and make the benefits available and then also uh, receive um, the individuals in the right way. And then once, uh, um, once someone comes in with a claim, then obviously – there's um, additional benefits other than, you know, purely the, the compensation benefit that we're processing, but it also leads to um, the availability, availability of health care, uh, potentially uh, vocational rehabilitation um, and other benefits that go along with it. But I did want to ask um, Dave and Monica, if you don't mind, Dave mentioned the OIG investigation earlier and sort of why why are these claims difficult? Why is there a higher propensity to make error and why is the deciding these claims in an accurate manner been such an issue over the last couple of years? I can take that question. <clears throat> so I think part of the things that is part of filing a claim for military sexual trauma that's difficult is that a lot of times it reopens these wounds that people don't want to revisit. And so a lot of times um, allowing a space for veterans to feel comfortable to not only have these conversations, but also to get the help that they need. So when I speak to veterans who are apprehensive about even starting this process, I explain to them that, you know, it's about yourself and your self-care. And so sometimes it's important to have these conversations with other professionals who can help you. And so starting this process of a claim, what can they get out of it? Well, they can get some compensation if there is a service connection um Found. And so the way to uh, get service connection is that there has to be an incident in service, something now, and then a nexus, which is the link that connects the incident in service and the incident now. So now the hard part is that sometimes these cases go unreported while, while on active duty, right, because of shame or because people don't want to be ridiculed or spoken of. And so... What happens is, as Dave mentioned earlier, that in these types of scenarios, we look for what's called markers. So we go through the veteran service treatment records, military personnel records. 
we looked to see if there was any changes in academic or performance, um, both academically on exams and things like that, but also in performance, their military performance. Um, we're looking at uh, patterns of change. If they were getting really high merits and then all of a sudden their merits went down, if they started, you know, let's say getting in trouble while you know, getting Article 15s or whatever types of instances while on active duty, those are things that we call markers. So while they're not, there may not be a direct report or a police report or something specifically due to that incident, we can look for things that could kind of allow us to put these puzzle pieces together um, in part by the testimony given by the veteran, which allows us to start in a place of where we start looking, but also in finding things that we know are symptoms or instances that cause these types of events. So we're able to give the benefit of the doubt to the veteran in these instances where we say, okay, well, we see that your performance was low here, and this is around the time that you you indicated that this incident occurred. So then what we do is we gather all of this medical evidence, and we prepare for a medical examiner for them to have the final call. So we set the veteran up for an exam. They then go to the exam. The hard part about this whole process is that the person has to revisit this instance when they're telling us, right? When they're revisiting it, when they go to the exam and they have to talk to the examiner. So while we understand that these are very difficult situations, we want to help the veteran and this is how we do that. In some cases, you know, there's not enough tools or facts in in order for us to grant service connection, but it also depends on when the veteran is filing the claim. If the veteran is filing a claim within a year of discharge or within two years of discharge, and there is some type of a medical diagnosis, as Adam mentioned, they are entitled to get benefits through the VA hospital, even if it's just for treatment. So, So the big picture is that while these are things that are not spoken of, there are a lot of things put in place Uh, for veterans to support them so that, you know, we can service the veterans to the best of our ability and so that we can have their voice be heard. Adam, I'm sorry. Uh, David, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. And I mean, the one thing to say, too, is uh, it's in terms of if you were to review the OIG reports, um, there have been some issues with with these types of claims. And I think a lot of that is because these claims are very unique, and, and the way that the claims processors, there is, there is a lot of specialized training that's required in these, and, and looking through that evidence. Um, there's On our station, there was only certain individuals who could gather the evidence for these claims. There's only certain individuals like Monica who were allowed to rate these types of claims, the, the MST claims. Um, and they're unique in that all majority of other claims that we work there has it's it's pretty clear cut in terms of we're looking for an event in service and if if something's not in service um it typically results in a denial of the claim for benefits um or if we're looking at a a claim as far as presumption for exposure if that geographical location isn't found in service it would typically result in in a denial of a claim um these the, the the PTSD claims based on MST are unique in that um, we're looking for not just medical evidence of a condition, but we're looking for behavioral changes and, and those markers that Monica had mentioned. And and because some of them can be so minute, they can be overlooked very easily. And, and that's why we really want to encourage individuals to 
seek somebody to be their representative and, and help them file this claim and submit the evidence and submit the statements that they need for their claims to be favorable. Um, um, that way we... That's right, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Adam, so on that, on, on what we heard from David and also from Monica, is, is, has there been an increase in, in reviewing a lot of the uh, some of these um, uh, MST cases or claims that were maybe denied over the last few years? Because it seems like it's been more of the forefront of the conversation in the military, especially for veterans. Because we have, I saw a report, there was 1.3 million outpatient visits in 2015 for, at the VA for MST-related um, conditions or MST-related subjects. Um, that's a lot of people in one year. You have 1.3 million people in one year getting MST-related care. Um, I mean, that's a lot. So what's going on as far as is there a push now for the military to start recognizing this issue and starting to take it uh, more serious and also start um, re-evaluating some people that maybe had a claim denied? Can people go back and get a claim re-looked at? Yeah, and we have taken steps um, as an agency to move towards uh, making sure that these claims are decided accurately. We've gone to centralization. So like Dave and Monica had mentioned, we have people that are specially trained within each regional office, right? And uh, not only, you know, do they have to take uh, certain extra training, they also have to have um, their cases reviewed uh, to make sure that there's a certain level of accuracy before they can rate and release claims on their own. Um, but we've also moved towards centralizing MST claims at five five regional offices uh, around the country to make sure that everyone in that office, everyone that's uh, processing these claims um, is an expert in these claims. Because, um, yeah, you're right. We, you know, there was a a review and an an analysis done on these claims um, and found that they, that there was a high propensity to make errors. Um, So the agency moved towards centralizing them and having them only decided by certain specially trained experts and i was just looking at the numbers you know doing um excuse me i'm definitely a little under the weather today um no worries about 1500 claims that we're completing a month um that are mst related wow that's at the jesse brown va no 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 no. that's at the national level okay this is not healthcare. this is this is um decided compensation claims okay and then what's the what is the well I guess we can't we have numbers are probably too soon to tell now but do you see a lot of cases that were denied being overturned or are people getting benefits now because people are maybe looking at the, the evidence a little bit differently? You know that's that's not something that I can comment on um, off the top of my head so I'm yeah I'm, I'm not sure about that. Or Monica maybe you have that. I, I can add to that. I can add. I think that what happens is that when veterans are denied for their claims, what we do in our rating decision is we inform them of what tools or what pieces of the puzzle they need in order to be compensated. And so what happens is that, like I discussed, there was the three pieces of the puzzle in order to get compensation. And sometimes what happens is that they don't have one piece of the puzzle. So let's say something did happen and we're able to confirm the stressor. And let's say we send them for an exam and they go for an exam and they don't have PTSD. There's no diagnosis or there's a diagnosis of anxiety or there's a diagnosis of something other than PTSD. On the basis of MST, we can only look at MST for that particular case on the basis of PTSD. So if there's a diagnosis other than PTSD, we cannot associate that specifically to MST. We would then have to go through the normal direct service connection process and look for an in-service event independent from a marker, which is what makes the military sexual process 
a bit unique in that we're not looking specifically for an event in service, but we're looking for things that could have possibly been an event to then confirm some type of an in-service stressor. So that's the big the big change. And so I think that when people are denied, the, the difference between these rating decisions and a normal rating decision is that it's very specific in giving um, – We call it a long form. So basically we're very specific in explaining what it is that we need to help you, help you, help you, right? So if we're saying, okay, there is no diagnosis of PTSD in order to get a a grant for, you know, military sexual trauma on the basis of PTSD, a diagnosis of PTSD is required. So let's say a year down the road, that same veteran that was previously denied, if let's say they were to file a claim within a year of that previous decision, and now they have a diagnosis of PTSD, there's something that's called continuous prosecution. And so continuous prosecution means that that person has continuously prosecuted that same claim, and now that diagnosis was found. So now we're able to change the way that we grant that based on an effective date because we're recognizing that, yes, it happened, but we cannot give that until a diagnosis is present. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle, but that's just one easy example of when someone is denied, we do inform them, and these are the pieces that they would need to come back with in order for us to reconsider their decision. So the kind of to recap, because, I mean, being in, being in the military myself, uh, being a veteran, you know, a lot of times we can we kind of sometimes we sanitize language by using acronyms and things like that. But when we're talking about MST, it doesn't have to necessarily be the case, but we're, we're talking about things like rape. We're talking about things like sexual assault. We're talking about things like that are very graphic and very, very gripping and can affect you psychologically. And oftentimes people bury those things and, may, those, and those problems may not manifest in their behavior for maybe years later, maybe years after they're, they've been discharged from service. And also, and unfortunately, you have a lot of times when people do, did try to go through the right steps. They had uh, negative things happen to them, sometimes even resulting in, in, uh, in less than honorable discharges early, prematurely, um, because they tried to file a claim or tried to you know, report that they were raped. So, for speaking, um, I guess as a as a woman, you personally, do you do you? What are your concerns about the behaviors in the military and how uh, the VA system and the military system is treating, you know, things like military sexual trauma and sexual assault, not just for women but for men as well? And that's for Monica. Well, being that I am not a veteran myself, but speaking as a woman. Um, and I've worked in the VA for 11 years. I have seen kind of where the VA has taken this issue of military sexual trauma. Uh, I will say that there's been a lot of changes in favor of veterans in being um, more sympathetic, but also like, I want to say like a relaxed standard in that we we take things at face value, right? We take the veteran statement at face value. We honor their and what they're saying. And I think that in the past, military sexual trauma was not something that was discussed. It was not something that was supported. It was not something that, you know, was compensated in the way that it is now. So I think that we've definitely come a long way as an organization in providing these safe spaces for veterans to, to speak their truth. Um, or to have a space to be heard. And I think that the claims process does that. And I know that it's difficult for people to, you know, open up these wounds that, you know, have been closed for a long time. But the only way 
to be compensated is to talk about what happened. And the only way to do that is um, through filing a claim, through getting the treatment that you need. On that and note, we've got to wrap up. Sorry, sorry we ran out of time. But I really That's appreciate good. your time, guys. Monica, David, Adam, thanks for joining us. And this is a great topic. I wish we could talk more about it. But we're out of time. America's Heroes Group will be right back. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.